to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. People that own luxury vacation homes can rent them out when they're not there. That way, they can offset their costs and maybe even turn a profit. Today's guest founded a company that makes it easier for luxury vacation homeowners to maximize their investment and reduce the time and hassle it takes to manage it. Andrew McConnell, co-founder and CEO of Rented Inc., is a self-made entrepreneur who identified an incredible niche. So today we have with us a dyed-in-the-wool, real-deal, successful entrepreneur who's got one heck of a track record and has now started another company. And his name is Andrew McConnell, who is the co-founder and CEO of Rented.com, a company that specializes in vacation and short-term rentals. Andrew, welcome to Street Smart Success. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I um, sought you out based on what you've accomplished in your background. It is incredibly uh, impressive to me. And so I am super excited to talk to you. I want to talk to you about your uh, business endeavors, uh, and we will get to that. But was just curious before we begin, where did you start your life out? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I'm basically Southern. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I've lived in Alabama, North Carolina, Florida, and now Georgia, and then went to school up in Massachusetts for about seven years. So most of the time down here in the South. You are obviously a modest guy because I love the fact that you went to Harvard and said you went to school up in Massachusetts. I mean, Harvard's in Massachusetts, so that's where I was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but instead, of, a lot of people say, I went to Harvard, but you said I went to school. And so it, it's impressive, uh, obviously, that you went to Harvard. But I, I was being tongue-in-cheek that you were being modest about it. It was an attempt to compliment you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, and so what, what did your folks do when you were in Birmingham? My parents initially met um, when they were in med school. And I was a surprise for two med students to have while they're trying to do med school. Initially, they were still doing school. And then they did residency and then fellowship for about two years in Cincinnati. So they left Birmingham, but then came back and they took jobs at different hospitals in Birmingham. And were they from the South? They were both from Alabama. So you went to Harvard. You went to Harvard Law. What was it like being in that environment? They're, they're actually pretty different. And Harvard's interesting and probably just going to the Northeast in general, coming from the South, coming from public schools and everything in the South, of so many students went to prep schools in the Northeast. Now, I wouldn't even pronounce the school's names properly. And it, it was kind of a funny joke that I hadn't heard of all these fancy prep schools that people went to up there. And so I think a lot of them knew people who had gone to Harvard or had a bunch of people in their own class from high school that had gone. And so they had these Big Ten friend groups. And for me, I didn't have that. But what I did have, I was an athlete, I was a swimmer. And the week before school, the whole swim team would get together each year. And we do kind of a pre-training trip at somebody's house, um, typically who lived in Connecticut or New York up in the Northeast. And so I had that baked in group anyway. So I think if I hadn't had that, it would have been a much more difficult transition being kind of from the outside coming in. Yeah. Yeah. You had your tribe 
it kind of at the onset. Correct. Yeah. And I, I think that just made the transition that much easier. There was another piece that I didn't really shop around a ton in schools. I, I applied early to Harvard, got in early. And then it was just because um, for swimming, other schools had recruited me. I applied to one other school, but that was after I had already gotten into Harvard. And so I was looking at going to USC and LA for, for swimming as much as anything. And so I didn't really compare what the educational experience was. And it was only afterwards that I had heard that a lot of the education at Harvard comes from teaching assistants and teaching fellows because it's more big lectures. You have these big name research professors, but it's less one-on-one. And I did know that that wasn't the norm because I that, that was all I knew. That was my only college experience until I went to law school where it was much closer relationships with the professors. I worked for multiple professors when I was in law school. Uh, and really got to know them. They would have us over to their houses for dinner and we just got to know their families. And as I understand from some of the smaller colleges, that is actually a more normal college experience as well. And so the, the law school, you know, you get to, I got to Harvard and you're just amazed by how smart everybody is around you. And then I went to the law school and I was like, oh my God, these are the smartest people from the college all brought together. <laughs> and it was this next level thing of just surrounded by absolutely brilliant people uh, and the amount that you were able to learn in such an environment. You know, it's, it is, I mean, there's nothing more iconic that I could think of than Harvard Law School. It's kind of the pinnacle. So going back for a minute, what event did you participate in in swimming? I was a distance swimmer. So for the NC2A for Harvard, for kind of college swimming and high school swimming, high school, the, the farthest it goes up within the high school as opposed to club is 500 yards. In club and then college, it goes up to a mile to 1650 or 1500, depending if you're long course or short course. And then I was on the U.S. national team for open water swimming. So for that, I would go up to 25 kilometers. So how many, uh, do, do the math for me. How many miles is 25K? 15.5. So the equivalent running would be back-to-back marathons. It would be like doing two marathons, like running 53 or so miles. I'm just like laughing only because I'm like, I'm just thinking like, yeah, so a guy that could like swim 15 miles, well, period, but but then do it competitively and want to do it competitively is a guy that, that is set to be successful in business. And maybe the the reason may be different than you think. I mean, one of, there's a, a joke, which may not be a joke, it may just be a statement of fact, but a friend of mine who was a swimmer in college, who was very, very good, much better than me, uh, said, you know, there are two kinds of swimmers. There are those with talent, and then there are distance swimmers. And I was obviously a, a long, long distance swimmer. And I think part of how I fell into that, especially on the open water side, was it was just far less competitive. So I was relatively good, you know, you could two-time All-American Division One in the pool, but I was much, much better uh, internationally in the open water because the best swimmers, the fastest swimmers focused on the pool side. And so it was a less competitive area if you were willing to go through the pain of doing it. And I think similarly with entrepreneurship or founding companies in general, much less depending what industry or what uh, niche you go into finding those difficult niches or areas that other people aren't all competing for just does create additional opportunities if you're willing to put in that work. 
well, you're right. That's not what I would have thought, but it makes a ton of sense. Um, the hardest workout I've ever done, I do CrossFit training. Okay. I do CrossFit. I'm the oldest guy in the gym, the slowest and the weakest. But the hardest workout I've ever done is burning as many calories as you can on an assault bike mm -hmm. uh, in one minute. Yeah, that high intensity just going for just one minute. You wouldn't think, but it is a near death experience. <laughs> you feel like your heart's about to explode. It, you, you do. And, uh, you know, and it's funny what you say about the business. In my business, you know, I've, I've enjoyed some success. The first many years, I was kind of out in the desert trying to figure out what I was doing uh, with little success. And ultimately, I got successful because I did pick a niche where there wasn't as much competition you know, and, and kind of put some ego aside in my case, but I don't want to dwell on that because this is your podcast, not mine. In reviewing your profile and preparing for our conversation, I did not see where you practiced law. Did, did you actually end up practicing or no? I never really did. So I, I did summer internships. My first summer, very focused on education, litigation for a firm, Sutherland, Asbill and Brennan, now Evershed Sutherland here in Atlanta. And then my second summer of law school, I split between McKinsey, went in uh, the consulting side, and a labor and employment kind of civil rights boutique also here in Atlanta that doesn't exist any longer. And then I actually did a second law degree. I went to the UK and got a second one. But at that point, by the time I finished that year, I had already accepted a job at McKinsey to go to the business side. So McKinsey paid for me to do the bar exam. So I did the bar exam, passed that. And then literally the day that I got news that I was accepted to the bar, I went inactive and said, yep, yeah, I'm actually not going to practice. Why did you get a second degree, law degree? So the when I went to law school, I went for a very specific reason. I wanted to practice civil rights litigation. And... I, my, my first year of law school was the 50th anniversary of the Brown v. Board decision. And one of the professors I worked for wrote a book that came out that year on the kind of 50 year legacy of Brown v. Board and was very connected and got me very connected in that community. I got to meet everybody living who is associated with Brown v. Board. I got to that summer work on education funding suits, the ABA, uh, American Bar Association conference that year happened to be in Atlanta. They happened to be doing a retrial of Brown 50 years on. I happened to be able to get to spend a good chunk of my summer working on that trial. The judges for that trial included Justice Breyer from the Supreme Court, who had also taught one of my classes, my first year of law school. The experts on the panel happened to include my thesis advisor's wife from college because it, it was just everything that I wanted my career to be. It was perfectly drawn up and I hated the work. So the subject matter, the purpose, everything behind it was exactly, I got everything I wanted. I couldn't have imagined or dreamed up a better scenario. And yet every single day, I was less and less energized from sitting in an office, reading memos, writing briefs, never interacting with other human beings. And so my first after my first year of law school, I said, okay, I, I don't know if this is for me. You know, what are the other options with this legal degree? And so I thought, because I was really enjoying working for this professor, maybe I wanted to get into academia. And Harvard had a program where they would pick five people each year to spend your third year of law school in the UK. Go to, you go to Cambridge uh, and you get a master's in law. And, so, and Harvard gives you credit for that. So you get these two degrees over roughly the same time. And so I said, okay, well, if I'm going to teach, it, this would be very helpful to do that. So I uh, went to do that. And then the more I worked for professors, I was 
thing. And as much as I might like the teaching, so much of the rest of it is just sitting, researching, writing. Again, not the stuff that's really exciting to me. And I was very excited on the business side. So yeah, and it ended up working out well. I met my wife there and it was absolutely great. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, very happy I did it and love my time at Cambridge, but never used that degree in a practical sense. So you, you met your wife at Cambridge Law School? Yes. Yeah. She, my wife's an attorney that had gone to Cambridge. So your parents are both MDs, I'm assuming. They were met in med school. You and your wife are attorneys. I would imagine your daughter is, probably has an IQ of north of 130. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's been a decent amount of research about IQs can be kind of societal and cultural. So I, I don't know. But I love my daughter. I know that. <laughs> Regardless of her IQ. So let me ask you an obvious question. I promise we'll get to the business stuff, but I, I, I'm always intrigued by the personal stuff just because I am. Why did you want to get into civil rights litigation? Yeah. I, I mean, this is a pretty raw conversation. Uh, I, I grew up in the South. Like I said, born in Birmingham, Alabama, lived in North Carolina. And what I took as fact, I pretty quickly, once I went to the Northeast and was studying history and reading other history books and other perceptions or other interpretations of we kind of joked about it, but it wasn't entirely a joke of the Civil War being the war of Northern aggression. And then you you dig and say, oh my God, no, this is not the truth. This is not what history is or, or was. And this is not what a lot of people's present it is not that right now. And so just the more I learned, the more I, I saw that was not my country living up to the ideals that I, I thought we espoused. And I, I wanted to work to address that. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I specialize in raw conversations. Otherwise, <laughs> okay. you know, but to me, the alternative is boring conversations. And you know, who would want to do a boring podcast? Uh, what did you do at McKinsey? A bunch of different stuff, mostly focused strategy or organizational design. Uh, it would, it'd be a mix of working for big companies, and then I'd say, I really want to leave now, and they'd say, Well, now you get to work with this huge urban school district to work on their teacher effectiveness. And say, okay, I'll stay so I can go work on that. Uh, and then I'd go work for some big companies and say, okay, I, I think it's time for me to go now. And they say, actually, why don't you spend this year bouncing between Washington, D.C. and Kabul and Herat and Afghanistan working on economic development? So, okay, well, fine, I'll stay for a year and do that. Um, so it's it, kind of a, a mix of real big corporate company work structure strategy and more economic strategy for governments or even public school systems. So it was all around education? No, I mean, my, the only pure education one I had was the one for the, the school district. It, I was more, instead of industry focused, I was more functional focused. So you can get these specialties, and I did a double specialty between strategy and organizational design. And so how do you design your company around what you need to achieve the strategy that you've set out? And then how do you build strategies based on the organization you have? So kind of coming at it both ways. Okay, yeah, and you did you did say companies, so my bad. So you were in Herat and Kabul. Yes. Yeah. Wow. What was that like? I mean, I I was a contractor, right? So I wasn't in the the armed forces. So I think it was my experience is very different from those who are truly on the front lines and not just popping in and out having meetings. But it certainly was different. You know, you'd have to reschedule meetings because there'd be a firefight happening in front of the building where you're supposed to have a meeting or. You couldn't actually get to the meeting because there's a firefight or you're reading the airline magazine 
about the hotel you're going to be staying in. They say, oh, it has this really good restaurant. And since the last massacre, they've really tightened up security. Like, wait, what? Since the what? Um, And this is where you're checking in. So it, it was definitely different. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine not having been there. I've actually heard that Afghanistan is beautiful. It's Uh, gorgeous. It's absolutely, I mean, apparently it was this huge tourist spot until kind of the Soviet invasion in the late seventies, eighties, but like in the sixties, a big, big tourist spot. Yeah. That's what I heard as well. Like if you were, I don't want to say hippie because then it narrows it, but for lack of a better term, that was kind of a cool place to go and chill out is, is kind of yeah. the sense I had. And then you went to um, you went to Axiom, and, and what did you do there? I was pulled for a, a partner I worked with at McKinsey had gone over there to run their New York office and then ended up running a division. But they were launching a new product and so wanted me to be the, the first hire to go grow that. And so it was called Managed Services. And, and um, up until that point, Axiom was really staffing individual attorneys at big Fortune 50 companies. And what they saw was a, like everybody wants recurring revenue, they saw an opportunity instead of just doing one-off placements to take on entire functions. And so my job with managed services was to grow that out. So I would go, they had just signed their first deal and had hired the team. So it was my job to go help train that team and then oversee the management and reporting of that team. And then from there to grow it. So I would go work with the sales team to go sell it at these companies. And then I would have to hire the team and then train the team and then oversee the team. So the nice thing was the first year took it from, you know, that first one-off deal to over 20 million in revenue in the first 12 months. The downside was because I was the person on every single step of the process, my capacity to continue growing, it was quickly tapped out of, well, if I'm also on the management of these teams, then it's going to be harder for me to sell them. It's going to be harder for me to take the time to train them up and to hire for them. And so I, I just started to get concerned on my scalability uh, which also happened at time with when I came up with the idea for Vacation Futures, which was the the first business I had started. Just for clarification, because I don't know if I'm following you that well. So you are staffing attorneys at big companies. Are you saying that you would then uh, sell in the idea of providing? So you would be providing attorneys to these companies, and then are you saying that once you did that, you would then train them as well? Yeah. So when I say it, it was managed services, so I would take over an entire function. So our biggest one was derivatives trading and the contract negotiation behind trading these derivative derivatives. So is the contracts. And what I would do is instead of this huge team you had in London, I would set up a team in Belfast. I would hire for that team in Belfast and I would spend months and months working with the company in London on the front end to document out the entire step-by-step process, build out all the playbooks, all the tools to be able to hand over to this team. And so what we were able to do is we could come in, be a third of the cost, or I mean, a 30% lower cost than what they had initially, but also turn all our contracts faster and with better results because I had standardized and templatized so much around it. And so we take it from New York and move it to Houston, or we take it from Connecticut and move it to Raleigh-Durham. So part of it was uh, a location, a geographic arbitrage, and then part of it was just building more standardized processes around it. So I would go help sell the client on the idea. Then I would work with their team to build out the entire process 
And then I would take that process and hire a team and train them in another location to go execute against that process and then help oversee the management of that team ongoing. Okay. And how many years were you there? About two. About two years. Then on to your entrepreneurial venture of Vacation Futures. I read a, a little bit about the inception, but I'd rather you tell it than me how it kind of, how the idea was conceived. Yeah. The, the funny thing on the idea it really was, and it, it's crazy to think that so much of your life and the direction can go off of a single conversation, but it was January of 2012. I was on a family vacation and over lunch, two of my dad's friends were talking about VRBO. And because they were so animated about it and I hadn't heard of it, I just started asking questions. And when they described how they were doing it, I said, well, that, that seems crazy. Why, why don't you do it this other way? And they both looked at me like I was an idiot and it was the most obvious thing. I said, well, obviously, if there's a way to do it that way, everybody would do it that way. And when I heard everybody, that sounded like a very large market share. And so I immediately wanted to see how big this market size was. And it turned out it was a hundred billion plus market. And so I, I spent the next 10 months investigating, talking to prospective clients, really researching, sizing stuff out. And finally, in November of 2012, had enough personal conviction and convinced my wife enough to, to go take a flyer and start this new company, which was trying, and this is where the name came from. Uh, again, I was working a lot in finance and derivatives trading at the time, but uh, this idea of creating futures contracts for rental rights. So instead of the doctor or the lawyer having to rent out their vacation home themselves on VRBO or Airbnb and spending 10 hours a week dealing with guest communications and scheduling cleaning, or hiring a management company who was going to charge them 40 or 50% commission, what Vacation Futures would do is say, hey, in 2021, I'm going to go use this home for four weeks. There are 30 management companies in my location. I want all of them to bid on who's going to pay me the most for those 48 weeks. And so we would run these auctions and the owner would get a guaranteed income. They would know it's the highest possible price because the managers were having to compete. And then ultimately the best managers were, were winning out. So the, the property managers, you're saying, bid to the owner of the property who can manage the property. And are you suggesting that they then, is this a dollar bid situation where they- Correct. Say, okay, so Andrew, I'm going to give you, you know, you get 40 bids, let's say, and, and let's say nine grand for the week. I, I'm assuming these are high-end, you know, luxury. Nine grand is the lowest. And so then I, Andrew that owns the house, Roger that owns the house says, okay, you're the one that's the lowest bid. Let's say nine grand is the highest bid. Okay. So nine grand is the most. But you'd buy for the whole year because there, you know, there's some weeks it's sitting empty. There's some weeks not worth as much. So you'd say as a manager, I think this is probably going to bring in between 60 and 80,000. And today, homeowner, because I'm going to have costs to run it out for that, I'll guarantee you 50,000. So I'll pay you 4,250 a month for the next 12 months. Fascinating. So in other words, they then take the risk on the manager. Correct. Wow. Okay. That's, that is absolutely fascinating. Had anybody been doing anything like that at that time? There were individual managers that would do it on one-off properties. So almost no one was doing it, but there were a couple individual companies that in individual instances with a homeowner may agree to a contract like that. When would they pay the owner? It would just be a monthly, it was basically a lease. 
Okay. Oh, wow. So you'd have the, a lease with the right to sublet essentially to short-term renters for a week at a time. What was the model for uh, Vacation Futures? How did you derive your revenue? We charge a, a percent of the total contract price. You're charging the owner a percent? The manager. Charging we, we the, manager. Wanted the, the Yeah, the owner, whatever number they saw was going to be the number that they got. And what was a typical percent that you charge the manager? We charge 5%. 5%. Yeah. Fantastic. And I guess at its peak, you could define this however you want, but how many homes were in the portfolio that were on the platform? Yeah. I mean, we got up to tens and tens of thousands. I, I, I don't know. It grew very, very... Once it started clicking, it grew very, very quickly. I mean, we had literally millions and millions of uh, rental weeks up for sale. It was one of those, once you're online... Because no one else was doing it, we would get signups in Baku, Azerbaijan. And, you know, I had several properties in Baku. I've never been to Azerbaijan, but we had a bunch of properties there. And you'd get them all over the world because we, we couldn't legally charge for the transactions because you can't do business there. But we had properties in Iran. We had properties in Cuba. But yeah. Wow. What percent were U.S. versus international? It still probably was 70% U.S. I mean, we, we put zero time or effort to get the international ones. It was just by kind of searching around as people are looking for options. We were the only option for this category. So they may read an article or Google around and come across us. And so they'd sign up. And then just roughly, and again, you're probably not going to have the exact number, but what would have been a typical monthly fee that, that the homeowner was being paid by the manager? Yeah, I mean, the, the average revenue for properties in this market is about 35000 top line. And then the managers would obviously discount that. So you could think maybe 24000 would be what's guaranteed to a homeowner if that was the average. The reality was because of the nature of our marketplace, the properties managers were willing to take that risk on were actually, actually higher value properties because they were, they make a lot more. Basically, the, the work to rent a property that you make 100000 on a year is actually not that much different than the work you have to put in to make 24000 on a property from the property manager's perspective. So I think our average contract sizes were probably twice that. We're typically over 50000 Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it takes no extra time. Well, I mean, the, there's there are more guests typically because they're bigger properties. So there's a little more on the communication side. There's a little more value at risk. Maybe their service level expectations are higher. It takes more time to clean. So the turns take a little longer. There's a little bit more work, but it's not like a 25,000 property is one quarter the work of a 100,000 property. You know, maybe 20% less work. Got it. Well, that makes sense. So you're just dealing with more people. But other than that, there's probably more constants than variables in the equation. Right. Um, how much money did it take to get that business off the ground? I mean, initially I, I spent out-of-pocket money, but I, it actually didn't take because I used it for an offshore dev shop and had to throw away all the code. <laughs> the, the MVP for that business was my cell phone. So it was kind of my cell phone plan and using Google Docs. So how I initially did it was... I would call up individual homeowners and say, Hey, would you be open to getting these guaranteed offers? You have no commitment to accept it, but would you open, be open to hearing what managers would be willing to offer you? And once I had the pitch down, I was getting 90% of those people to say, yeah, sure. Let's, I'll list with you. And then I could put those together and get their photos as emails 
uh, and, and send those out to the management company. So I drive down to Hilton Head or I drive down to Destin, Florida and knock on doors and meet all the different managers and say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to bring you a bunch of property owners. Would you be interested in growing your portfolio this way? And so I would just email them batches each week of, Hey, here are eight new properties available in your market. And then we'd take the bids and put those in a Google sheet and a spreadsheet and follow up with the owner on, Hey, here's your highest bid. Here's what it looks like. And so once we had some activity going in that, then I could use revenue to, to start building out the website and doing it and, and the market, uh, the marketplace platform to do it in a kind of step by step way. Uh, you know, um, my jaw is on the ground because that's, it's not what I would have guessed. And it's so impressive. So are you saying you just started this thing by yourself? Yeah. I mean, day one, it, it was just me. I had a, a desk sitting in my bedroom. And actually day one, I quit my job and then got struck through it the next week. So it was a little tough in that I could only kind of work at 45 minutes at a time, but it was just me kind of cold calling. And my wife is saying, this is way below your pay grade. I said, my pay rate now is zero. I don't think there's anything (laughs) below my pay grade right now. There's no one else but me to do this. Oh my God. So, I mean, you're cold calling homeowners and then you're essentially cold calling managers. I mean, you're inventing this thing out of thin air, but you're literally just one at a time, one at a time, getting homeowners on board. And I get it as a 90% 90 reception rate, but even still... Well, initially it wasn't. It was only a a 5% reception rate. It was because I was the one calling the owner, I could tweak the pitch, tweak the pitch every single time. So if you're doing 100 of these a day, you're getting a lot of reps. And once I had a pitch that I went from, I'd be lucky if one out of every two listed with me, you know, I'd have early days, I'd be excited if I got one person to do it. And then it was, okay, I could get one out of every two. And then all of a sudden I had eight in a row that were all excited to do it. I said, okay, I think this, this is now working. This is good. I still think there's a connection to the long distance swimming. And even though you're saying it's because you weren't a talented swimmer to swim the short distances, I still think there's a connection here that a guy that, that can swim 15 miles can do what you did is, is what, I'm, what I'm gleaning here. But that is amazing. And, and so where did it ultimately get? Because it says that the, the vacation futures, again, on your profile was through March of 2020. And so what was the exit? Yeah. So the, a couple different things happened. One was we got the marketplace to where it was doubling every month. So crazy online marketplace dynamics. And that, that was fantastic. And then raised venture capital. And pretty soon after the venture capital, the growth stopped. It absolutely plateaued. And it wasn't that it disappeared. It just stayed at the same size each month. And we try all these different things. We're increasing costs to try to get it to grow, but we weren't growing. It was the same revenue each month. And what we eventually figured out, you know, it's obvious in retrospect, but it took me a long time, was owners, this idea of guaranteed income, none of the work, managers competing, that market was almost limitless. Owners would take that every day of the week. It was a very rare owner that did not want that option. And the flip side was the managers, there were not many managers who had the financial means, the financial sophistication, and or the geographic diversification to be able to take that risk. They, they only managed 30 properties and they were all in the same area. And so by guaranteeing a contract, if hurricanes hit, if COVID hit, if any of these things happened, they'd put themselves out of business with just a few properties. So some managers couldn't do it at all. 
some managers could only do one or two contracts a year. And there were only a handful of what we would call power user clients that could really come in and do a lot of these. And so because it was amazing for those who wanted to do it, and all these owners wanted to do it, when it first started going, it absolutely exploded. But we took over basically the entire market (laughs) very, very quickly because it was the only one of its kind. So to try to unlock more demand, we said, okay, if most managers can't do this guarantee, but most owners want the guarantee, could we bridge the gap? Could we offer the guarantee to the owner and then work with the manager on a commission and see if we can be smarter about what we offer the owner and how much we make from the manager and make some money on that? And so we launched in 2017, 2018, we launched a fund to go do that. And the economics were very, very good. You know, it started off, it was doing over 70% uh, internal rate of return within five months. It was just this money machine. We, we did it initially to just create liquidity in the marketplace, but then pretty soon it showed this was going to make a lot more money than the marketplace could. So we raised the fund and we were focused on that. So that was rented capital. Um, and it kind of worked in parallel with vacation futures. And then what we saw was more and more managers were raising bigger and bigger sums to do the same thing. And so that rate of return kept coming down as competition went up and we needed more and more money. And so I was spending my entire life, like I wasn't home. I was only on the road fundraising. I was talking to TPG. I was talking to Soros. I was talking to the the big fund players. And one of my teammates, uh, my co-founder now on Rented, said, you know, at this size, when we have thousands of these properties on our own books, our attention should not be on adding more of these properties, especially as the economics get worse. It should be on making more from the properties we have. We need to be focused on revenue management and the pricing on these properties. And when we started doing it, we thought we'd get a 5 or 6% lift. And we ended up getting a 30 to 300% lift. So we had the same property with the same manager. And in some cases, we were tripling the amount of money those properties were bringing in. And so we said, wow, this is actually very, very different. This business doesn't require us to go raise tons of money. It can grow based off what we have today. And by the way, it's growing 10x faster than this other part of the business. So what we started doing was selling off those contracts and not renewing new contracts and unwinding that entire portfolio. So by March of this year, we shut that down and started rented as its own entity to just do pricing revenue management uh, for these short-term rentals on the behalf of the property managers. I see. Going back to when you raised the capital, how much did you raise? Over time, I mean, the, there are two different ones. Like we had, we had a fund that let us lease up to, it was over a hundred million dollars. Uh, and then in equity total, we raised about 10 million. And then I'm not a sophisticated finance guy, but when you essentially completely, not completely, but when you modified the model to where it is now, was it a new co? So did you then? This was, yeah. So we, we started a new company April 1st. So Vacation Futures wound that down and started a new company to do this pricing and revenue management. And so at that point, do you then, and I don't know how this works, that's why I'm asking, do you then just return the money that was raised? For the fund, yes. So that we were fortunate for that fund, it was a single investor. And so we didn't have to go get a ton of different people on board and figure out the payouts. It was a single single entity. 
And so we were able to get them on board and just unwind and, and return that capital over time. I see. And just out of this is a random question, what was entailed in getting the domain name rent.com? Well, so it's it's rented. Rent.com is actually a, it's a different company. Happens to be based in Atlanta, owned by RentPath, but that's kind of for apartment rentals. So it's a like apartments.com and those. We're rented.com and it was it was just available. And so one of the people on the team said when we were looking for names, hey, this is available. And we found a broker so they wouldn't know who was trying to buy it and just purchased it. So when you say, okay, so so it wasn't one of these, it wasn't one of these go daddy, I'm assuming you you got it for nine ninety nine a year. So was somebody <laughs> was somebody sitting on it and being on Yeah, I, it must have been somebody that kind of bought it as an investment. So no, it wasn't a nine ninety nine, but it also it wasn't like a hundred thousand dollar domain or anything like that. But you know, it's is more than what you're gonna get just on a normal GoDaddy contract, but not not crazy. Yeah, because what it's still a fantastic name. I mean, it's incredible. We like it. <laughs> yeah. So then with, with Vacation Futures, then at the, let's say March of this year, how many employees did Vacation Futures have? At that time, I want to say Vacation Futures was uh, 16 people, maybe. Wow. How many was it at its peak? Maybe a little over 30. Gosh, what a great business. And how many do you have now with uh, Rented? We're, we're at 16 now. If you would ask me Monday, we're at 15. We just hired somebody else this week. But we've now been kind of growing this one pretty quickly. It sounds like just a really efficient business model. That's, yeah. I mean, that I think part of coming from what I was doing at Axiom, where it really felt like we scaled with bodies and that you build based on the number of attorneys you had. I've really tried to focus on scaling with the value you deliver and how to do that efficiently. Clearly. So a simple, simpleton question coming from yours truly. So then did, and you've already explained it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, so does vacation futures effectively, you wound down the contracts, you wound down the vacation futures contracts. And so the question is, does rented.com, did it start with then no revenue? Uh, rented, we, we did have some revenue because we had contracts that we were doing revenue management for through the other business. We had started it as a sideline while we were managing the fund. And so what we did was pulled off that business line. Okay. And then are the existing, uh, employee base that you have now are basically those were the same people that were working for vacation futures? There are a few. Yes. Yeah, so I want to say maybe a third of the team is the same. And then it, it is a different business. So it, it just had different needs, different skill sets. Hence, you know, what we're hiring now. It's still in the short-term rental space, but it's we're doing totally different stuff. Okay. And uh, are you a virtual team or are you guys are part virtual? How many, how many people are in Atlanta? Yeah, we... Uh, now in Atlanta, it's less than... Or just about a quarter of the teams here in Atlanta. And everybody else is remote. So, you know, at the peak, we had almost 30 people here in Atlanta with Vacation Futures and got lucky. We we started going remote early this year. And so now with people not going into the office anyway, that's one nice expense that we don't have to take on. I see. With Vacation Futures at its apex, what were the revenues? We got to just under $10 million. That was our, our revenue. 
And so now you are with rented.com. You've identified kind of the a path to move forward in. And um, I would assume that you're going to do, I know you'll do incredibly well. You've done a lot of things. And what would you say, I guess, looking back, what would you say is the most important lesson or lessons you've learned? To be adaptable. You know, it's uh, nothing stays the same. And so you can't stay the same if you want to stay relevant. They're, they're obviously the extremes of 2020. But even in general, any industry evolves, your competitors evolve, your clients' wants and needs and desires evolve. And so making sure that you're staying on top of all of that and evolving as well, whether it's business and for a product or for a company or just in general to stay relevant and interesting and worthwhile in life, just being really adaptable and, and paying attention. So I'm going to be a bit presumptuous. And uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess that uh, going back to when you were a kid, your parents were, were both doctors. So it was a high achieving environment. I mean, your parents, if you're a doctor, you're a high achiever. The doctors are some of the most educated people in the world. And then following kind of uh, along the lines of your education and competitive swimmer, I'm just going to gather that you're just you kind of have success DNA, but you're incredibly smart. But I also get that you're have incredible fortitude around persistence and that you're a driven person. So I'm assuming that's why you, you have been successful. But would you say that that's not a complete picture? True, partly true. Why would you say you're successful? I mean, I think it's a ton of different components. I, I certainly have a lot of advantages that you kind of peel back of the network of if I need to go fundraise, the fact that I was meeting with TPG and Soros and everything, you know, the, the Harvard network and having gone to school where I did certainly opens more doors. And I have people that I know that work at those different places or can make those introductions. And it didn't hurt <laughs> and certainly help uh, me to get there. The fact that I was a, a good swimmer and had good education, good grades. And the fact that you know, my parents and you know, my dad was teaching me multiplication and division probably when I was in kindergarten or first grade, right? So it wasn't, even though I was at public schools the whole time, my education wasn't just what I was learning in the classroom. And with swimming, I could take the time to do that because I wasn't working two jobs to help support the family. And my parents would let me say, hey, look, I really think you need to focus on school and your sports because that's going to help you get ahead. And so I think having parents that were super supportive uh, and, and gave me that space, having coaches and, and teachers, um, having a wife now that and for the past 10 years has been super supportive to, to let me go kind of follow this and go from making a, a certain salary to zero for several years. And then even now, uh, taking far less than I was making before I started all these companies because I always want to plow any money that's coming in back into the business and hiring, growing that team. Yeah, it's it, we were having this conversation actually with a friend over the weekend, me and my wife, and I, I think it's intelligence, it's hard work, and it's luck. And maybe any one of those can get you to a certain place, but I'd say there are certainly people who are not as smart as me and haven't worked as hard that are far more successful. But I think there are also a lot of people who are way smarter than me, who work a lot harder than me, that aren't nearly as successful. And it sometimes you just need kind of all three components to come together in the right way. I think that uh, the people that are smarter 
and that work harder. First of all, I would challenge on that, but let's, for the sake of this conversation, go with it. The people that work harder and that are smarter, and this becomes a philosophical discussion, I believe if they stay working as hard as they're working now and assuming they have that baseline intelligence, they will eventually become successful. Yeah, I mean, I think that it depends on your definition of success, too. Like a, a good friend from high school and college ran growth for Facebook and for Uber. And he talks about finding product market fit for a new business, a new product is kind of like drilling for oil in the sense that the more money you have, the more resources you have, the smarter you have, you are, the higher likelihood you have of finding it. But it doesn't guarantee it. And there's sometimes that people with way less resources, with way less science behind it, just happen to tap into the ground and get a gusher. And there are times that Exxon puts in tons of resources and they drill and there's nothing there. And this is part of being smart and working hard. He said what he found, he had founded several companies and they had taken off to a certain level, but it wasn't getting where he wanted, that his skill set was far better used going to companies that already had the product market fit and growing them because it was a crapshoot at some level on if you were going to get that product market fit to, to click. So he's been incredibly successful and in that, yeah, he ran growth for Uber and there have not been many, and Facebook, right? Like two insanely fast growing companies. But if the, the success was just defined in terms of being the founder CEO of a company that reached a certain size, then that was not the success. He, like he redefined what success was and, and was smart enough to move to where he could make the most of his skills. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. I mean, the definition of success is a whole other is a whole other conversation. I guess I'm limiting it in this what you and I are talking about to a business context, but it, it obviously is much broader than that. Why do you think uh, most businesses fail and, and others succeed? Actually, I've written on this one, and I think there's a decent amount of falling out of love with the business. So. Back to the being adaptable and moving around and, and iterating of either to succeed, it becomes something that you really don't want to do, or you're just tired of the iterations and want the, to get rid of the uncertainty. But I, I don't know if there's anything obvious that makes it after, you know, f- six years, 50% of the businesses are out of business other than, yeah, I'm just tired of trying to bang my head against a wall. And so whether you call it persistence or stupidity or, or you know, whatever you want to call it, I think some, a good portion just comes down to the people that are required to make it succeed don't any longer want to do what it takes to make it succeed. That has been a common thread of, of people that I have spoken to uh, in this podcast. And uh, yeah, I mean, it does speak to persistence. And for whatever reason, at the, you know, at five years or six years or whatever years, the falling out, the opposite of falling out of love with something. Well, I just spoke to somebody yesterday and he said that, you know what, had he not been passionate about what he was doing, there are many, many, many points along the way where he wouldn't have continued. He's a gentleman that uh, was the founder. I don't think he would mind me mentioning him of Shady Rays, which is a, a company we were, you know, selling sunglasses. And he started out of his house not unlike you, and was starting, you know, selling six and seven, you know, pair of glasses a day, and now is selling over a million a year. And there's just so much resistance to becoming, quote, unquote, successful on that level, that most people just really aren't constitutionally fit to do it. 
it just takes so much fortitude and inner strength and call it insanity. But most people just aren't aren't really fit to do it. Or I mean, it's it's not worth it, right? Like because you could get to whether it's just like not everything's certainly purely financial, but you may get into something believing it has a market size and market potential and business potential of X. And so you look at the opportunity cost of what you could do elsewhere and you say, yeah, it's worth it because it's X. And then as you get four years in, you realize some of the assumptions are wrong and it's actually one-tenth of X and it no longer makes mathematical sense to do it. So Jason Fried had this uh, podcast, I want to say with Peter Atia, uh, The Drive, and he was saying, failure is not stopping something. It's continuing to do something that you shouldn't continue to do. And so is success can be getting to the right and better answer as you have more information. Well, eloquently put, you know, I wonder what percentage of people that start and get to that point where they realize maybe their assumptions were wrong, maybe the market changed, maybe any number of things transpired. Yet I wonder what percentage of those people as you say, adapt or, you know, attempt to um, initiate another endeavor or discontinue the desire to be an entrepreneur and go work for, you know, somebody else. Yeah. I don't know. This has been every bit as fascinating as I thought. And uh, you're a guy that started, you know, out of your home and built something really substantial and found a niche filled it. And uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Andrew, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you for taking the time. And I hope it wasn't too raw for you. No, 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 it's good. I, I'm a pretty open book. You just never know the questions. Yeah, it's good. Talk to you very soon. Sounds great. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Street Smart Success.